This is the Blue Box podcast, and we're going to be talking about Doctor Who for the next 60 minutes because that's what we do. I'm Simon. I am Mark. And this week, there's no Lee. Party on, guys. <laughs> Love you really, Lee. Lee's not here this week, so it's just the three of us this week. We need to fill the comedy hole. <clears throat> we don't want to be thinking about filling any of Lee's holes. Thank you very much. <laughs> I thought we were back to Mary Tam for a bit there. <laughs> yeah, oh anyway, moving on. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, <laughs> let's get out of this as quickly as possible. Right, this week, we are going to be talking about... Marmite. Yes, mm, this week yum. we're not going to be talking about Doctor Who at all. We're going no. to talk about sandwich spreads. Mm, no, the Marmite effect. And the Marmite effect is? You either love it or you hate it. It's stories or people or seasons mm. that polarise opinion. Mm. Yeah, the stories that nobody's ambivalent about. Mm. You mm. either, you know, really like them or you really don't like them. So, shall we start with a very good example? Well, what's the best example then, do you think? In recent years, it's got to be Love and Monsters. Absolutely. Without doubt. I mean, Love and Monsters is one of those weird stories, isn't it? I some people just really, really hate it. And some people really, really love it. But nobody seems remotely, you know, in the middle about Indifferent the story. Indifferent about it, yeah. I don't mm. know anybody who'd give it like a five or a six or a seven. They'd either give it a one or a two or a nine or a ten. I don't know yeah. if this is going to kind of completely mess up your theory, but... But you're ambivalent about it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> when I watched it first time round on air, I just thought, this is terrible. And then I rewatched it again when the uh, box set came out, and I actually got a new appreciation for it. I really like it. Well, that happens quite a lot, to be fair, mm. I suppose, because that's, you know... Sometimes there is a thing where when you watch new Doctor Who, especially new Doctor Who now, mm. rather than just a Doctor Who you've not seen before, you've got so high expectations of it. Almost every episode I watch, I'm a little bit disappointed with the first time because, you know, you just want every episode to be perfect. Mm. And so, you know, the first time you watch it, very often I find I'm a little bit disappointed the first time and then I'll watch it a second time or a third time and, you know, it's the second, the third viewing that, where it really sort of makes sense. Well, there's no reason why it shouldn't work the same as music. You get that with music, don't you? you can exactly. Have, you can yeah. have an album that you're really not sure about. You, you almost hate, you know. And it grows the, on you. Absolutely. Grower, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. With music, that's a brilliant example because mm. it takes listens mm. to, you know, grow to love something. Yeah. 
Mm. And it's, it is the same with Doctor Who. It's weird because there's not many series that are like that. I mean, you watch, say, Spooks, for instance, and you have to get it straight away. Mm. Yeah. Because, I mean, some of these series, I'm not saying Spooks is perhaps the best example of one of these series, but pro- programs like Cora and, you know, EastEnders, whatever, things like that, they're just mm. made to be watched once and mm. never seen again, yeah. really. You know, some people watch the repeats on the weekend or what have you, mm. but but they're made to be watched once. And programs like Waterloo Road, The Bill, as it was, and yeah. Casualty and what have you, that but Doctor Who is one of those series that's almost built to be watched more and appreciated better. With those quite quite ironic years. when you imagine, you know, when you think that it's only in recent years that we've had the 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 luxury the of recording to do it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, mm. those early, early episodes, right up as far as, you know, mid-1980s, probably, mm. were only ever meant to be seen once. And, of course, sadly, you know, there's a hundred of them that only ever have been mm. seen once, which is... So are there some that you come back to again and again that you really enjoy? You mean the old ones or the new ones? Either. Oh, me? Mm, yeah, you personally. Okay, this is... We're going slightly off topic. We're going slightly off topic. We'll get back to Marmite <laughs> in a minute. Well, what about an example of one... You know, where you do keep coming back to you, but you initially disliked. Oh, me, I can't say. Off, you ask me questions <laughs> off the... T- we should have done... We should have done... Well, have, free... it, have it ticking over in the back of your mind. <laughs> okay. come back, but should we go back to Love and Monsters and then just I tell say... You what, I tell mm. you what I do every now and again, and this is like a just a thing, is like I'll sort of, you know, have a free afternoon and I'll think, I'll put a Doctor Who on. Yeah. Pick something from the classic series mm. and I'll pick... You know, nine times out of ten, I'll pick a Robert Holmes. Yeah. And as soon as I've put one Robert Holmes on, I just have a compulsion to watch the rest. <laughs> so if I put, say, I mean, one time I did it, I put, came home from work, lunchtime. I, you know, I was, um, I work shift. So yeah. I came home from work one lunchtime, mm-hmm. put Carnival of Monsters on, thinking I'll just watch that and then I'll go and make some lunch and then I'll do something else. But Carnival of Monsters finished, so I put Terror of the Autons on, and Terror of the Autons finished, and I put the Time Monster, the Time Warrior in. And before I knew it, it was like 10 o'clock at night, and I'd watched <laughs> five Robert Holmes stories in the trot. Sounds like a pretty good way to spend an afternoon. Well, <laughs> in my <laughs> opinion. Worst ways to spend an afternoon. <laughs> yeah. I hey. spent yesterday afternoon clearing a block toilet, so there you go. Mm. Clearing a, is that a Robert Holmes story I don't know about? <laughs> Anyway, Love We're and Monsters, we kind of got started on there before I started putting you completely on a different tack. Well, okay, why do people, the people who hate it, why do they hate it? I think that particular story, you could construe it as possibly poking fun at fandom to a degree. It, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I think so, that, yeah. that, that probably uh, polarises people. There are some it's so people funny, that, the reasons people hate it are probably the reasons it's so damn good. good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well... We'll go on to something which isn't good. Somebody made the point somewhere. Mm. I'm not sure if this was a fan who liked it, who was trying to point something out to fans who didn't, or if this was actually one of the people who worked on it. But it's really obvious when you look at it. Mm. And I mean, you know, I think I probably realised this, but I hadn't really thought about it till they pointed it out. But the the rest of the cast mm. are good fans. They're kind of fans who will love Doctor Who. Yeah. Not unconditionally but who won't look for things to moan about whereas the character that peter k plays is the kind of fan who looks for things to moan about Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so he comes in as the sort of villain of the piece and he reflects 
back onto a certain kind of fan, something negative. Mm. But I think that sort of part of the message was probably lost. I don't know. I wouldn't say it was too subtle, mm. but I'd say that because it wasn't, you know, laid out on a plate in front of you, I think perhaps some fans missed that. I don't know. I'd missed I, that. I'd missed that. Oh, really? It hadn't occurred to me, yeah. Yeah, well, I don't think it occurred to me till I saw it, but as soon as I saw it, I sort of, un I realised straight away, yeah, obviously. Mm, mm. And as soon as, I mean, you can see what I'm saying now. As oh, soon absolutely, as you, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think for a lot of people also on that story, the absorber loff is something that, that really that puts people That is one element that, that I still can't swallow and I still think is just really badly realised. Mm. Um, and no offence to the little boy who designed the absorber loff, but... Well, yeah. I think... I think if you're going to do something like the Absorber Love, which is like a a monster that's been designed by a, I don't know how it was, 8, 10, 12, whatever, mm. but, but by a kid, I think, A, that's a really, really nice thing to do for a kid. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And B, if you're going to try and shoehorn something like that into a story, then you'd only want to do it in a story like Love and Monsters. Yeah. You couldn't have stuck that in, you know, a big season finale. No, no, I, I do wonder whether they could have, you know, a bit like a Star Wars cantina scene where it wasn't necessarily the central. But I think that was kind of the point. I think if you're going to do a designer monster competition and say to them, your monster's going to end up on screen, mm. if you then shove it in the background in a sequence where it doesn't do any speaking, you've kind of done the kid a bit of a disservice, really. Yeah. yeah. I think, I don't, I I agree with you. I don't think the Absorber Off is terribly well done. And I don't think Peter Kay's a terribly great actor. But I think he gets away with most of his performance because he doesn't need to be. No. I think the only bit where it really sort of lets itself down is the bit where he's chasing yeah. the, uh, <laughs> down the street at the end. That bit yeah. doesn't come off yeah, well at it's all. Yeah, not, it's not it, good. But I think apart from that, the rest of it works. Hmm. Peter Peter Kay himself isn't happy with it at all. No, I read an interview and I think me. he said it's the only thing in his career he's got any regrets about. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. yeah because he'd want to be better or because he wish he hadn't done it? Um, I don't think he's got any issues with Doctor Who itself. I just, yeah, no, I just I think, think he's it's a fan the, whole... of the program. Yeah, yeah, so... I think I just think it's the way it all, yeah, turned out. Yeah, I yeah. think the rest of the cast in the the program are pretty pretty good. All people I tend to like watching. Oh yeah, some great actors mm. in there. Mark Warren is a oh, fantastic yeah. actor. So I've, I found the episode really moving. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. first watch, I found it really moving. Yeah. And when when all the negative criticism came in, I just thought. And I tell wow. you what else about Love and Monsters is it is one of the best directed episodes of the Absolutely. new series. Not just the, I mean, you know, I always say this when I talk about direction. It's not just the camera work; it's the actors as well. Was, was the it whole... the Was it the first Doctor Light episode? Was it the first one? So say say again. Sorry, you know the well. Obviously, the... oh, the first Doctor mm. Light episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, in which case, it is a bit of a funny pill to swallow, isn't it? Mm. For, yeah, for the fans. Yeah, absolutely. That was part of the reason why some people don't like it because you know you don't get any David Tennant till ten minutes from the end. Yeah, so in in essence, it was something that's never been done before. Looking at the Doctor from another character's perspective. Completely. What was great about Love and Monsters, though, is that it's just a great piece of television mm. that just happens to also be an episode of Doctor Who. Mm. Whereas some episodes of Doctor Who, yeah, but as you know, ones that are classics just as much as ones that aren't are only great pieces of Doctor Who. And, I mean, some of the things that we like, if you stick them in front of the general public, mm. the general public would probably sort of get a bit sniffy about and say, what are you talking about? That's <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why the show's got such a, a huge fan base, because it can appeal to so many different people. You've got 
lots of different styles of story that you can tell. Yeah, exactly. But um, one of the things is what might be a classic to somebody who just likes Doctor mm. Who. I don't mean just likes as in doesn't like anything else, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. One of the things that might be a classic to them, to somebody else watching... To a casual viewer, they might Yeah, not. it might be. I mean, a lot of these things are kind of... Um, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? They're very, they're very narrow mm. in their appeal. Mm. And mm. then the great thing about Doctor Who is, like you were saying, it does have a really wide appeal. Mm. But by the same token, because it does so many different things, there are always going to be bits of it that don't have such a wide appeal. Mm. And you kind of, especially these days, with it being, you know, the one episode story... It's very easy to get past that and move on to the next week. Mm. But that still doesn't, you know, get past the fact that there will be episodes that come up every now and again that just don't appeal. Mm. So you're talking about the sort of the mass appeal. Do you think possibly in the 80s, one of the reasons why the viewing figures possibly started to go down a bit towards the end, I think possibly it might be down to the fact that the, the people behind the show were perhaps focusing a lot on continuity and perhaps not. Uh, trying well, to I appeal think, to a more mass audience. I went into audience. this a bit bef- when we were talking before, mm. and I'll go into it a lot more detail later, maybe. Mm. I don't think it was the continuity. Mm. I think it was the way it was done. I don't think there was like a... I mean, the, if you look at the figures on paper, mm. it looks like there is a really big dip at the end. Yeah. But I think throughout that entire decade, there was a gradual, gradual. erosion, not necessarily of the viewing figures, but of the public appeal yeah Mm. i don't think it's the continuity so much you can stick as much continuity in as you like and it can still work yeah remembrance of the daleks is a great example of a story Mm. that works in spite of the fact there's masses of continuity in there that 99 percent of the people watching couldn't have been expected to understand but it's the way you present it Mm. and i think what really made a big dent Mm. in doctor who's popularity during the 80s was that they were writing stories that people couldn't understand. Mm. I mean, you try you try and explain the plot of Ark of Infinity now from one <laughs> fan to another, <laughs> and you couldn't do it. Yeah. Now, you try and imagine watching that yeah. on a, you know, a Monday evening, dinner time, with mm. three kids in the room. You know, Lee's great at pointing this out. If yeah. you're going to watch Doctor Who... Bless him, Lee. He's not here. He's in that box. He's in <laughs> he's that here box in spirit. With, he's in that box with Stephen Moffat in the corner it's of the a room. Bit of a tight squeeze, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think that's why he's in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway, that's what Lee's it. But he's great at pointing out the fact that you know Doctor Who has to work mm. if you've only got half an eye on it. Yeah, just as much as it works. Yeah, if you concentrate yeah. on it completely. And um, you know, I think during the eighties there were a lot of stories. Season 20 is absolutely filled to the brim with them. I mean, mm. oh God, look at Mordrin Undead and yeah. Terminus. They just don't work. So would you say there are seasons as a whole that are, are particularly marmite? Are you trying marmite? to get around to something in particular, <laughs> I, aren't I, you, I Mark? Know because you, you know what we're going to talk about I, in a minute. No, please, please expand on that. Well, I was going to actually, seeing as before we get there, mm. a little tease for you then, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we are working towards something here. Yeah. Because... There is one, I wanted to use this episode in particular as a Mm. sounding off board for one particular moment in Doctor Who that I think boils the Marmite argument down right to its absolute basics. But before we get there, we've just done an example of Marmite from the new series. Yeah. Mm. So we should do an example of Marmite from the old series. Mm -hmm. Would anybody like to maybe 
choose a random story that's from the old series that I'm holding a piece of paper <laughs> up here with three <laughs> oh, words written on it. Card, as, card. as part of my homework for this this uh, particular episode. When you say homework, does that mean looking at the piece of card that I'm holding up? No, no. Okay. Um, yeah, I you sent me a copy of the uh, the top 50 and the bottom 50 of the 200 poll that was done in Doctor Who magazine. Are you going somewhere else entirely now? Sorry, you don't have to... Uh... Oh, okay. Okay, he's going <laughs> there. Right. Oh, no, I thought you were looking at personal ones. To hell with the format. Okay, let's go to the personal ones then. We were, I was going to save this for the end of the show. But oh, fair enough. No, no, that's fine. As part of the theme for this week, Marmite, I mean, it's an obvious thing to do that each of the three of us should come up with an example of something that we love that mm. most people hate or that we hate that most people love. Mm. So go on then, why not do yours now, Mark? And then we'll talk about something else and then we'll do Simon's. Okay. Then we'll talk about something else and we'll do mine. All right, all right. So go on then, Mark. Well, well, before you do that, let's talk about something else. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay, Mark, your personal Marmite is... Yeah, I was quite surprised to see this one in the bottom 50. Um, and... I don't oh, know you're teasing was... us as well, aren't you? You're going to build up to this so that we're going to have to try and guess what it is. <laughs> yeah, go on then. Are you going to give us actual clues? Are you just going to... I'll give you one clue. Go on then. I cut you off halfway through a sentence. I'm not going to guess. You I can know what it is. Finish it if you like. So. You know what it is. I know what it is. How come I Ed, don't know what this is? Edge of Destruction. Oh. Do you know I marked that as my least favourite Doctor Who story of all time when I was asked to. Really? And that's yeah. why it's Marmite, you see. Yeah, see, yeah. I had the same reaction as Mark. I nearly picked it. Mm. Wow. I think, it's, I think it's a bit I, harsh to put it in the bottom 50. I see. I love David Whittaker. Mm-hmm. I love what the stories he wrote after he left the story editor's post, the Crusade in particular. Mm and I love his two novelizations that he did for whoever it was back in the 1960s, the mm. ones that were reprinted in the target range. Yeah. Love David Whittaker. And Edge of Destruction is one of those stories where I think 45, 50 minutes in the company of those four actors mm. would be very heaven. But the story makes no sense. The characters aren't used and they're all doing things that are against character. Mm. And I just, I just there's just something in my brain that cannot accept the edge of destruction. Mm. I think there's some great moments in it. I think for me one of the best parts is when um first doctor turns on Ian and Barbara and suggests that it's down to them that they've tried to sabotage the TARDIS in a way to try and blackmail him into taking them back to their own time. And uh, Barbara comes out with this fantastic speech. It kind of culminates in her saying, no, you shouldn't be criticising us. You should be down on your knees thanking us. You know, we saved you in the Cave of Skulls and we came and helped out in the Dalek City when you started the whole thing off by being a but bit of a... But don't you also think at the same time that there's a lot in the edge of destruction that just doesn't kind of add up? Mm, well, I kind of like the idea that something could possibly get into the TARDIS and start messing with their minds and making them all paranoid and... Except, of course, it hasn't. But the weird thing is, then afterwards, later, much later in the series, things did, didn't they? Mm, like mm. malice and what have you. Yeah. Mm. Uh, admittedly, the explanation of it being a slightly dodgy button on the console is perhaps not the best yeah. part of the story, but <laughs> I, quite, I quite like watching it. I, I just, also... I, I would stick up for it because I just think it's probably the first example of the series, weirdly, after we've been talking about Love and Monsters, the first example of this in the series of it doing something bravery and out something brave and out of the format yeah and and pushing the boundaries yeah uh, you, you could well, pick holes in, the, is, in the story but when the series was composed as it were 
that was supposed to be part of the format. There was supposed to be a story like The Edge of Destruction every third story. Right. The, the, the original plan was to do one in the past, one in the future, and then one that they call them the sideways stories. Mm-hmm. Where so, so you'd have one in the past that was just a historical, where the yeah. TARDIS crew got involved in history in some way. One in the future, or on an alien planet, which presented some kind of a moral dilemma. Because mm. obviously the whole basic premise of the series was to be educational. So it would educate you in history, and it would educate you in morals and ethics. And that was what the futuristic stories were supposed to do. The Daleks isn't really about the fact that these creatures are survivors of a nuclear holocaust. Really, it's about the moral argument. Should we be interfering? Mm. And what is the right thing to do? And that comes to a head at the end of episode four, obviously. Mm. That's the central premise of the Daleks. And then every third story was supposed to be one that sort of went off and did something entirely different that probably wasn't supposed to be educational in the same way as the other two were, making you understand things or making you think about things, but was one of those sort of ones that got you thinking tangentially. Planet of Giants was one. Yeah. Edge of Destruction was the first. Mm. Space Museum probably kind of, yeah. was intended to be one mm. and kind of maybe the writer didn't maybe understand the concept of what he was supposed to be doing mm. and reined it in. And then later on you get things like Celestial Toymaker, yeah. which are kind of a throwback to that original idea and that, but don't really... The mind robbers quite a, a good Yeah, and that's those, so yeah. much later. I mean, these mm. are just kind of... They're like memories of the fact that there once was... Yeah. What it, what it makes me think of, though, is that, I mean, that was the age, that was the time where you would literally get plays on the television. And it is like a play. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you look at the Doctor pedigree Who of the writers. Was, in a way. Sorry? All of Doctor Who was, in a way. It was like a, yeah, I know. The way but, it was made. But, but essentially, okay, you've got, yeah. like you say, you've got four f- people in one set. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I like, I like the idea mm. of putting four people in one set. And people keep, these days, keep saying, they should do another they call them bottle episodes they should do another bottle episode now with just the doctor rory and amy Mm. and to be fair actually if you think about it amy's choice is yes they never actually leave the the ship now that's quite a good point so that's kind of a but obviously it's not it's not what they meant and i do adore that first tardis set i think it's great and just getting a chance to Mm. to see more of that but i just don't think the edge of destruction adds up and I think it, I don't mind stories that don't make sense. Mm. I mean, we talked about why I like Stephen Moffat, mm. you know, a few weeks ago. And yeah. I don't mind stories that don't make sense as long as it not making sense. A, they're a hell of a lot of fun. And B, they make just about enough sense that you can follow the ride. Mm-hmm. But for the, for me, I just can't follow Edge of Destruction as soon as people start doing things out of character. Mm. And I know they're supposed to be deliberately doing things out of character because that's what the TARDIS is supposed to be making them do. Mm. But actually, the responses from the other members of the TARDIS crew to the person who's doing things Mm. out of character are also out of character. I I take on board everything you're saying, but I just think it deserves a lot of credit for what it tried to do. Yeah, Um, fair fair point. You were saying, Mark, about the reason why it came about. I mean, it was all to do with how much money they'd already spent on the budget. Yeah, there's documentaries and things on the the DVD. There's all sorts of stories about that, aren't Mm. there? Yeah. Well, the one they give on the DVD is that they had um, a budget for the overall series and somehow they'd miscalculated, or they thought they'd miscalculated, the budget that was spent on the TARDIS 
set. And they were trying to make the money back trying by to make the money story back. entirely yeah. in the entire set. Yeah. There's also the other story that, and then I think this one's been proven to be a fallacy now, but mm. I may as well repeat it for the sake of argument. This mm. was a, one of those fan myth things, maybe, was that the way these programs were originally contracted is that it was a 13-episode run. And because they wanted to do Marco Polo straight after the Daleks, mm. but by the time they got to the end of the Daleks, they'd done 11 episodes and Marco Polo would be seven in order that they wouldn't start on Marco Polo oh, and right. suddenly find themselves in a situation yeah. where they were cut off after yeah. 13 episodes. They needed to fill two. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if there's any truth in that. I mean, with a lot of these things, there's a tiny grain of truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was reading um, uh, the 60s last night. I was reading a section of that and they were going on about the importance of the 13 episodes and how they group the episodes together. So, as you it's say, it's also for foreign choice. sales as well because mm. f- foreign markets like to buy them in batches of either a quarter or a half a year. So they'll often be in 13s or 12s, yeah. which gives the foreign market a chance to have a week off for a bank holiday or mm. you know some festival or sport thing or whatever. Especially these days, they'll tend to do them in 12s and 24s. Uh, or they'll obviously do the 24 or the 26. I don't know how common a practice that was back then. I mean, the Avengers, things like that. Does anybody have the season box sets of those? Are they in, they're in 24s, I think, Lee the would Avengers. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Where are you, Lee? Lee? Please come back. Actually, he probably wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> he's in the box. You can always ask him. I know, he's doing something he's particularly busy. Yeah, pleasant to steal no, him yeah, off yeah, right now. Not so, Simon, what was your... No, Choice. no, oh. no! You're completely well, getting this whole idea wrong. Now we've changed the oh, okay. course of the program. I feel a bit of editing in. might be required in this episode. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, Raw you... and un- uncut. That's what. So, Jr. Was there <laughs> a particular gonna... story you wanted to talk about? By any chance? <laughs> no, I wanted. I thought when I was planning this because we do put a bit of planning into these things, even if it's you not very guess much. It. <laughs> no, not now. You wouldn't. I thought when I was planning this, I thought if Mm. we're going to start by talking about a new series story, that's effectively a Marmite story. Mm -hmm. We should also do an old series one as well, just to balance things Mm. up. Mm. And the story that sprung most readily, instantly to mind, was The Happiness Patrol. Mm. I mean... Not one I've watched for a long, long time. Something you dislike then, presumably. Um, Not so much the case that I dislike it. It's the reason why I haven't watched it. It's more a case of um, I've become a slightly more ruthless when it comes to I, buying my dvds and i tend to wait a bit for them to sort of come down in price and i'm a bit of a uh, tight old so and so much the same <laughs> yeah, a yeah, lot even, of worse, even less disposable <laughs> income in my house well yeah. we should maybe in a couple of weeks do an episode about dvds where we can talk about our own personal yeah, buying really strategies good, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so DVDs in a couple of... Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to the subject for <laughs> Happiness Patrol. I detested it when I, was, I, did. When I first saw When it, it was first on, I absolutely I, hated it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that was that was a lot of the McCoy era for me. Anyway, How old were you, though? Ooh, Do you remember uh, roughly? It must have been about 18, 17, 18. No, yeah. no, no, I was older than 18 because I was at college, I think. Yeah. Well, what year were you born? 71. So what does that work out? Oh, I think you'd have been 17. Yeah, yeah. I was 20, and I was born in 68. It was on in 88. So, yeah. You'd yeah, cynical 17. 17 so. <laughs> yeah, and 20 as well is not mm. the best of... When you're a teenager, late teens or early 20s, and I suspect particularly late teens, 
you really, really want Doctor Who to be cool or at yes. least sensible. Yeah. And absolutely. you don't want it to be outlandish and you don't want it to be and you know, I hate this word, but it's what people use and that's well, you don't want is, it to be camp. Yeah, that age you? where you want to be perceived as being deep. And yeah. The one thing that you're, <laughs> that you're not is deep. You're so shallow. All you can see is Candyman. Candyman. Yeah, I'm not going to say it anymore. Twice. Um, <laughs> but if you were deep, you'd actually uh, see funny. how deep the happiness Absolutely. patrol is. Well, mm. weirdly, I watched a bit of it today um, because I don't think I've watched it since since it was transmitted. So I'd always avoided it. I'd always watch the clips. And, of course, the only clips you ever see are the Candyman one because yeah. it is a Marmite yeah. story. And that's all they always mm. pick on because they pick on it as being... That's the, the time the it all started going around. really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, that's so wrong. I mean, I don't know what you think about the Candyman now, but I absolutely love the Candyman. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I couldn't eat a whole one. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. He's such a funny guy, is Mark. <laughs> You'd probably be better off in that box with those two. <laughs> <laughs> I really like those blue licorice all sorts. Anyway. Have we... I think we've digressed. I like even the more. Candyman <laughs> a lot. I like the concept of something that looks too good to be true and is too good to be true. I mean, I mean, for a kid as well, but for an adult, just as much as for a kid, you make a monster that actually looks like something really desirable mm. and just twist it slightly mm. so that it looks ever so slightly sinister because yeah. it's too desirable to be real. <laughs> And then you give it that personality. Well, is Doctor Who does that a lot, doesn't it? Was it sinister, though? Was it sinister? Well, the, the personality made it sinister. Mm. Yeah. But I think it did look sinister because it looked like something that was something you'd want to have. I mean, I'm speaking slightly metaphorically, mm. but it looked so much like something that you would want to have made flesh, as it were. Right. I mean, I under- I'm not saying that sweets aren't corporeal as they are, <laughs> but what I'm saying is, a giant man made of sweets. Mm. It's like, what do you want to do with sweets? You know, you want to have mm. them. You want to Yeah, it reminds them. me of Jessica Rabbit. <laughs> yeah. But Sorry, the fact I drifted that... there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. There's a But Doctor You've Who does... Rowley Birkin on us. <laughs> <laughs> Doctor Who does that with all the time, doesn't it? It takes something that's very everyday and then gives yes, it a real it twist. Does. Yeah. Yes, it does. Moffat does that particularly. And Rusty Davis mm. had a particular penchant for doing that towards yeah. the end of his run. I mean, he did it right from the start. The Autons, obviously, mm-hmm. is a perfect example. Obviously, he borrowed those. Yes. But he did it right from the start. But particularly towards the end, you sort of found him doing it with the Atmos thing, the sat-navs and mm-hmm. all whatever else. He was doing it quite... Yeah. So, yes, that is a big theme in Doctor Who. Yeah. But the Caddyman was like a real twist on that because usually when you do it with something like that, you pick something functional. Mm. but with you know the Candyman sweets it's not something that's functional but it's something that's a treat so you've got this gigantic treat that has this spoiled brat teenager personality just wants to go around (laughs) stamping on ants and you know killing people yeah I mean what I did get from watching a bit today was far more of the sinister aspect of it and uh, essentially the concept of what what the story was trying to do it really was trying to do did something did you know and i'm assuming this will be all over the production notes and in the documentary but i've not gotten around to watching it myself yet that the original concept for the candy in the script the candy man is not a bertie bassett creation made of sweets I've heard it's that just said a man before, in a yeah. laboratory 
who happens to be called a candy man, yeah. and who ah, makes the sweets. Right. So I've that would have been a completely before, yeah. different take. It would have. It would have. But I like the way they went with it, to be honest. Well, th- it, it does have a certain amount of style, doesn't it? I, I think. I think the other thing is that at the, now, now you can take it out of the time when it was made. That whole J and T era. Yeah. Where everything was day glow, everything was extreme. Well, we will call it eighties now, but everything yeah. was very day glow. Everything was everything, very yeah. um, obvious and um, in your face. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, you only have to look at um, the ter- the two space people in Terminus. Can't remember who they are, but uh, you know, and the, the ridiculous space costumes and that ridiculous garm creature in mm. Terminus. Terminus yeah. should have been a subtle and a dark story. Mm. And a few of the style, you know, costume decisions on that just mm. completely put, put the boot up the whole of the rest of the story, to be honest. Mm. I, think, I think I think if you took that story, The Happiness Patrol, out of that era and put it into another one, it probably would get a different attitude towards it. I don't know. I don't know. I just think it stands up really well, actually. Mm, mm. I mean, the last time I watched it, I'm, one of the things I really love about it is I just think the dialogue is really good. Mm. I just think... And I think this is true of the McCoy era as a whole. I mean, we're going to do an episode on McCoy fairly soon, so I don't want to talk about it too much, which is ironic because I'm going to be talking about McCoy later in this episode as well. <laughs> there you go. But I just... When Eric Saywood was script editing Doctor Who, there's a lot of really functional dialogue mm. and a lot of really bland, tough guy dialogue Yeah, that's mm. really bog standard. And, you know, it's a case of telling the story but without any finesse. But then you fast forward to Sylvester McCoy. And if you actually watch something like Dragonfire, Mm. and a lot of people, this is probably another Marmite story, actually. A lot of people hate Dragonfire. But if you actually watch it and listen to what the characters are saying to you, there's a few bad jokes in there, particularly the uh, semiotic thickness joke. But... Oh, you you watch it, you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. Also the cliffhanger. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> well, we'll talk about that another time, but yeah. there is a perfectly perfectly valid explanation for that, which I will <laughs> repeat on another occasion. <laughs> yeah. But the, the thing about Dragonfire is, take out all the overt cleverness that the author was throwing in there to try and show off a bit, and there's actually some really nicely written dialogue in there. And it's the kind of dialogue that, in another story, would have been remembered and gone down in Doctor Who fan lore as classic talking. But, mm. you know, because the story's so reviled. I think sometimes, maybe it's because I'm, I'm not that much younger than you guys, but I find, particularly if it's been a long time since I've watched an episode um, from the original series and I revisit it on a DVD... Yeah. Um, I quite often find I pick up on a lot of subtext that perhaps I might have missed just watching time. it. Yeah, if you're yeah, a teenager yeah. watching, you tend to just kind oh, of... Well, obviously. Well, that's what we were just saying, yeah, really, exactly, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I think it rings true of a lot of stories. Yeah. The other thing about Happiness Patrol, of course, is the sets and the look of it and the fact that it was at one point mooted as, you know, they wanted to film it in black and white. Now, whether that's true or not, I, it's probably one of those... Probably one of those things that's an idea somebody had that was never actually going to happen, but it's gone down into fan law because somebody repeated it or whatever. Mm. But obvious, the obvious thing about the Happiness Patrol is they wanted to make a virtue of its cheapness. Mm. It was the cheap studio-bound story, 
So they set it all in, not indoors, but in these city streets. Yeah. And then kind of deliberately made city streets that didn't look real to make a virtue of the fact that the sets weren't real. Mm. It's got a slightly surreal quality and it's got a slightly metaphorical quality in the images that are presented as well as in the story that's being presented alongside those images, which makes the whole package so much more rounded. And as an experience watching it back as an adult, Mm. that works on so many more levels that you can appreciate. Mm. Mm. Sorry, I love Happiness Patrol is, and I've said it before, in print. So it is my favourite story of the 80s. Oh, really? Yeah. I perhaps need to revisit that one then, because I haven't seen it for a long time. I'm certainly going to watch it properly since I saw the, the little clips today, just to... Yes. So we should move on now to Simon's personal marmite. Yeah, well, we'll rewind again back to Hartnell, and I'm going to go to the Keys of Marinus. See, this is weird because we've got a kind of a thing going on here where it's Hartnell and McCoy, the first and last <laughs> of the <laughs> classic series doctors. Yeah, it's the same uh, same reaction as Mark when I looked at the, the, the bottom 50 of how low down... I don't think it was the, the bottom 10. I think it was in the bottom 20. But Keys and Marinus is really low. And I've seen before reviews where people give it really bad marks. You know, the thing about Keys and Marinus is it's a Terry Nation script. Mm. And everybody knows now that Terry Nation just writes pulp fiction, basically. Yeah. And he kind of had gotten away with it with Daleks because that was the very first one he did and it was the very second story in the series as a whole and because at the time they were making it and um putting it before the cameras i think there was there was a big fear amongst the people making it and i've written about this in length in a column (laughs) that's going to be in the magazine in a couple of months time so i really shouldn't be repeating this now because Mm. nobody's going to read me anymore (laughs) if i keep doing this but there's a real fear amongst the people making the program because a lot of them are untested and unproven. Yeah. There's a real fear that they're not going to be taken seriously. So they take those first two or three stories really seriously. Yeah. The Daleks, look at the script. It's Pulp Fiction. And to be honest, so is the Tribe of Gum segment of yeah. An Unearthly Child. But you do it really, really seriously. And the people at home, not only are they kind of getting lost somewhere in a sort of conjunction between the pulpness and the seriousness mm. that's probably somewhere they've never visited on television yeah. before but at the same time because you're taking it so seriously you kind of wind them in yes and i mean it's easy not to watch next week's episode if the story's funny and you're not taking it seriously yeah. because yeah. you don't need to come back yeah. but if you are taking it seriously you really want to find out what happens to these characters yeah. And going back to what I was saying, because we were talking about the Keys of Marinus, I think Keys of Marinus is the first time you get a Terry Nation script when the production is relaxed enough that they're not taking it that seriously anymore. They're having a bit of fun with it. Yeah, and I think the problem is because it's the first pulp script that they can not take too seriously, it kind of goes a bit in the other direction as well. Mm. And don't forget the fact that each each episode is almost like a, a little story in its own right. That's exactly it. like he did with The Chase the year after. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And yeah, Keys of Marinus is The Chase Without the Daleks, essentially. Mm, mm. But that's great. I like that. Well, this is, the, this is the strength of it. I mean, the one thing that for some reason comes to mind when I think of Keys of Marinus, I mean, I'm, I'm going right back to the, the early days of Doctor Who Weekly. 
And oh, obviously, yeah, yeah. you know, before the days of videotapes, you had to rely on what was oh, on the, the page. the first few weeklies had the, what would they call it? The archive or... Yeah, yeah I can't remember what it was called. I think yeah. they called it the archive or something like that, where each... The first one had an unearthly child, yeah, and they and they kind of told the story in very brief synopsis form, right. and had a few photos, mm-hmm. and then the next week it was the Daleks. So, so for years, Keys of Marinus seemed like it was going to be amazing, yeah, yeah because you just had that... like three or four pictures, right. very carefully chosen pictures, yeah. and this synopsis of this fantastic story with screaming jungles. Yeah, and... so for a long time, it built up my expectations. So, you know, in in that respect, I can kind of appreciate. The strengths of the story, <laughs> without <laughs> actually seeing it, but but at the same time, when you do watch it, yeah. Although your initial reaction to it when you first watch it, having built up these expectations, is one of disappointment, yeah. But actually, when you come back to it again after that, yeah, and you come at you come at it as an adult, knowing what restrictions they had to play mm-hmm. with when they were making it, you can actually it was one heck of an achievement, mm. yeah, in production. I really like some of the ideas they put into it. I forget which episode it is now, but there's one where it's like there's there's two versions of reality. Yeah, in the second episode. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really yeah. Actually, I watched a bit of it today with the um the production uh, subtitles. Oh yeah, and they were saying about you know this bit's interjected with a bit of film. This uh, no, Hmm. it's quite it's quite a bit of um it's a lot of technical jiggery pokery. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but what what it reminds me of in a funny way is Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Oh, I don't know that so well. In, in that they they visit all these islands and there's always all these little. It's a bit like Gulliver's Travels in some oh, yeah. respect. Yeah, I was just going to say Gulliver's sections, Travels. So it's almost little adventures in amongst the big yeah, adventure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I don't I think mean, Terry Nation was great for that. You give because I mean this is one of those sort of truisms that you can look up in media studies textbooks. There are seven stories, mm. and you know, there's boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back. Or, you know, there's the murder and the whodunit. Mm, mm. And one of the seven kinds of story is the quest. Yeah. And yep. Terry Nation was the first guy who wrote the quest story into Doctor Who, essentially. Yeah, I guess. yeah. But then he kind of overdid it because yeah. he did it again with the chase. And then essentially he did it again with the Daleks Master. Well, there's another way of looking at Keys of Marinus in, in that it was the test bed for the key to time. It was, could... the, it was the template for a lot of what followed mm. because mm. it was, you know... Because in Doctor Who, obviously, those seven stories, the seven stories in fiction, obviously, you can't do half of them in Doctor Who because, you know, Doctor Who just doesn't do that. No. So with only a few different templates to work from, the first one of that template is always going to at least set some kind of precedent for what comes after. There's some great ideas going mm-hmm. on in there. Mm-hmm. And, I, and this is the thing about Terry Nation, and this is particularly true of the Dalek invasion of Earth, mm. in a tiny little television studio with a tiny little budget and a handful of actors, he put an alien planet on the screen on television that actually had seasons and poles. Uh, yeah, no, I was going to say that, yeah. The fact that exploring a planet, how often does that happen in a Doctor It Who never story? does. No, you no. don't. You don't even get that these days. No, I mean, you, you know, Happiness Patrol, you, you have to take that little leap of imagination that says oh yeah there is a whole planet there yeah it's all right. under but keys and mariners is the one time you actually get to see it yeah 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 i mean amazing ambition yeah and if obviously it was always going to fall short of that ambition but i think it's astounding a that they said okay we'll run with this and we'll try 
and B, that they got so close. Yeah. Dalek Invasion of Earth is the best example of that for me. Mm. To show the whole of planet Earth 200 years into the future, devastated after a Dalek invasion. Mm. Mm. Honestly, to put that on screen in a tiny little television studio mm. and yet to do it so successfully. Yeah. Amazing. Mm. Right. Now we can move on to what Mark was trying to uh, well, edge Just, just briefly, oh, what, is it, what is it that people hate about Keys of Marinus so much then? Just the fact that it's naff, I guess. Just it's, it's what, a general naffness. Some, yeah. some of the production yeah. values aren't yeah. great. But I think I, there are a certain type I forgive of fan. that. I think there's a certain kind of fan who does like their Doctor Who to take itself seriously. Mm, yeah. And that is the one story in that first season that doesn't. Right. And being that it doesn't take itself seriously and it comes before the Romans when it was suddenly okay for Doctor Who not to take itself seriously. <laughs> I don't know. It's just, it doesn't, if you're going to do not taking yourself seriously, mm. then you have to throw yourself into yeah. not taking yourself seriously. And Keys of Marinus is just somewhere in between all these different things. I always think there's a perpetual irony in Doctor Who in that it's the one program with a completely flexible profile and yet people the fans whoever when it does something different they don't like it <laughs> they don't like it don't like no. change well that's <laughs> and that's the basis for most of the marmite stories yeah mm. absolutely yeah. well the one thing i wanted to get on to i'm not gonna now to be honest because right. you know we're waffling on and on and this is a big <laughs> subject yeah that i was gonna try and introduce about 10 minutes into the podcast so that we could talk about it for about half an hour so we'll do that another time that's fine mm-hmm. This is a big enough subject for a podcast by itself, I think. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we'll leave that for another time. Right. So we we may as well move on to my personal Marmite, which is... Here we go. Well, this is... I've, again, <laughs> I've written a column about this, and it's just coming up in the print magazine. So, But, I mean, we can talk about it without me going over too much of the same ground. Mm. And it is back to McCoy. It's season 24. Mm. Right. Can you run down the stories? Uh, Well, it starts with Time and the Rani. Right. Then you've got Paradise Towers. Right. Delta and the Bannerman. Yeah. And then Dragonfire. Right. Mm. So all (laughs) four... I'm looking forward to this this defence. All four of these stories are in the bottom 20 of... uh, Certainly of Doctor Who magazine's last poll of the Mighty 200 or whatever. Yeah. All four stories. It is the most hated season in the entire history of the programme. So what is it that appeals to you about that season that makes you want to defend its cause well i hated it when it was first on Mm. there's no two ways about it i hated it when it was first on but through an adult's eyes it is the bravest the funnest the brightest reimagining of doctor who since since an unearthly child it is get after Five or six years when Doctor Who was becoming mired in stories that didn't make sense and in continuity issues, not necessarily continuity of the kind, you know, Attack of the Cybermen is a sequel to the Tenth Planet, not that kind of continuity, but the kind of continuity where basically Doctor Who was eating itself. Mm. A program, in order to be successful, has to reflect the outside world. And from the Leisure Hive to the Trial of a Time Lord, Doctor Who did not reflect the outside world. It reflected its own concerns. Mm. The trial of the Time Lord was the biggest example of that. Yeah. So symptomatic. It, the, the series is on trial. Yes. So how do we demonstrate that in the series? By having the series main on character oh, being yeah. on trial. It's not <laughs> yeah. even a metaphor. It's just <laughs> yeah. telling the same story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think Doctor Who, 
if they'd have done another season remotely like Trial of a Time Lord mm. afterwards, you wouldn't have even, even had the new Avengers because when it went off the telly, it would have stayed off the telly and it would have been dead. Also, I think another thing in its favour was that we had several seasons on the trot where it seemed almost like the Doctor and the Companions just hated each other and couldn't get on. They're always well, squabbling, so. falling out. And I think... Oh, Delta and the Bannerman. There's a scene in Delta oh. and the Bannerman. Oh. You hear me wince every time <laughs> that's mentioned. When was the last time you saw it? Uh, literally a couple of months ago. Really? Yeah. Oh, and you hadn't changed your oh, opinion at all? God, I just... I couldn't. I just absolutely struggled with it really but not you know there's a scene in delta and the bannermen where the doctor and mel are just sitting at a table mm. in the uh, not the lounge the where they sit and eat the canteen yes they're sitting at a table in a canteen having a conversation and it's given especially what's going on it's relatively relaxed relatively carefree mm. and it's the um well, this the very famous scene in Remembrance of the Daleks where the Doctor's talking to the guy at the tea counter in the oh, yeah, coffee yeah. shop. Yeah. It's basically the same scene as that, but mm. it's season early, um, but it's got, you know, Melanie Bush, it's got Bonnie Langford in it. So, yeah. you know, everybody ignores it or everybody hates it or everybody forgets it. But it's a great scene and it, sh- it shows a new dynamic for the yeah. TARDIS yeah. crew I, I, that we hadn't seen It's always the way, no matter how bad the story is, that you do get that eye of the storm effect, don't you? Where... Just little flashes they, of brilliance. Yeah. I think there are little flashes of brilliance all the way through Delta and Abandonment. Gromwe, the bre- the beekeeper. He's brilliant. And the He's fact the that, you know, it. the bees are used. I mean, the imagination. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you imagine an Eric Sayward story with Daleks <laughs> and double agents <laughs> and soldiers? Can you imagine that? And, the, the you know, the story's resolved by a load of bees flying in somebody's <laughs> ear. No. I, I, I would like rather yeah. any day of the week... I would rather have the bees than the unit soldiers, mm. to be honest with you. I'm not to denigrate the unit stories when the first batch of unit, but you know what I'm saying? Mm. I'd rather have the bees. I think Doctor Who is a program where imagination is a key factor. And I think for the better part of a decade prior to season 24, Doctor Who had lost its imagination. It become mired in retelling its own myths. Mm. And all of a sudden, season 24, you get four stories on the trot okay, you've got the Rani in the first one. But essentially, the Rani had been a new character a couple of years previous. Yeah. But you've got four stories on the trot that don't harken back to the golden age of Doctor Who. Yeah. But get on with trying to be a golden age of Doctor Who. That in itself is refreshing. Yeah, and that is a complete change Mm. because, you know, throughout the whole of Eric Sayward's tenure as script editor, you had a programme that was trying to relive its glory days by re-being its glory days. So who is responsible for this big change then? Well, most people would put it at the door of the new script editor, which was Andrew Cartmel who came yeah, in. Yeah. And yes, got to be 99% him. John Nathan Turner gave him free reign to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, John Nathan Turner's got to get a lot of credit for turning it around yeah. because that guy got a lot of stick during the 80s mm. for some of his decisions. And, you know, there were key decisions made that were fighting against each other colin baker's costume and colin baker's stories yeah. do not belong in the same program no, no. i mean colin baker's costume would probably have worked okay if you had the same kind of stories <laughs> that Sylvester Ma- <laughs> well, no, if you had the same kind of stories that sylvester mccoy was doing yeah where yeah. the doctor was this cosmic jester a bit yeah. like the patrick oh, it's funny one. you say about happiness patrol that <clears throat> I, I thought yeah if you're going to transfer it 
it's you a could Colin turn, Baker story quite easily, couldn't it? I think actually, and this was in a column I wrote a while ago, so I can say this quite easily. But I I did a column about Colin Baker and about what maybe would have happened with him mm. after you know, Eric Sayward had moved on if Colin Baker hadn't been sacked and he'd have stayed with the programme. And can you imagine those three Sylvester McCoy years with Colin Baker instead? Without going too far off subject, I recently heard something in a in another podcast, um, and I'd never heard it before, about this, this underlying plan to... Soften bring... the character? Uh, no, no, it was to do with oh, connecting with the two Doctors where the second Doctor was taken out of time and was working for the Time Lords. And that was going to be brought in in a big way, where the idea of the Time War was going to come in a lot earlier. Oh, I don't know. I've not heard anything like that. that. I didn't know how official it was. But there there was going to be some kind of undercurrent which was going to come in, some huge arc that was going to come in. Oh, I can't say I've ever heard that. No. Is this tying in with that whole season six B thing they were talking about? Yeah, it's not. This isn't something that wasn't actually planned, but something that they were retconning into. Well, you know, it. in um, in the two, well, maybe who knows? But because the, the thing doctors... about the two doctors, obviously, is that they Robert Holmes and we said this the other day, mm. the other week, rather forgetfully made. The second Doctor, an agent of the Time Lords, when this it should is have it. been the that, third. That was the that was the crux of it. And a lot of people afterwards, fans mm. retconned the series yeah. by saying, "Well, after the War Games, maybe he didn't regenerate straight away, but he became an agent of this the Time Lords." This is what Lords. they were saying. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a retcon. Right, it was never planned for the series. It's a retcon. Oh, and it's not one I I don't. See, my stance on that kind of continuity is if they cock it up, they cock it up. Just yeah, get on with telling yeah. good oh, stories. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, retconning is something I'm not particularly fond of. And going back to season 24. Go on. Um, I remember watching Time and the Rani being broadcast and I felt I really wanted it to be good. And perhaps it was the age I was at at that point, but yeah. I just found it really, really hard going. I hated and it. I just, I couldn't quite grasp the character that Sylvester McGoy I admittedly it was early I, days and that story wasn't written for him either was it well no it was written for generic doctor but then you know you can write any story for generic doctor and it's what mm. the actor brings to it I don't yeah. think that's necessarily a problem I, I don't I don't dislike McCoy and I I don't know if we disagree on this but I find his later ones can, more interesting that at the start of the story it's actually Colin Baker in the mm. TARDIS mm. and when he falls over he doesn't regenerate he just bangs his head and uh Loses his memories for, yeah. you know, two episodes. Yeah. And try and imagine him going yeah. through that story. And I think it's quite an easy thing to imagine. Mm. And I think it's quite easy to imagine Colin Baker in most of Sylvester McCoy's stories. Yeah. But we are supposed to be talking about season 24. Yeah. And what I will say about season 24 is you've got all this imagination and all this newness and all this, all these attempts not to do Doctor Who the way that Doctor Who had been doing Doctor Who. Mm. And I think that when you get to season 25, they sort of pull back on that a bit. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, there's the Daleks and obviously there's the Cybermen. And that's, you know, in your face. You can't miss that. Mm. But also, I think the way that they started doing Doctor Who, they, Andrew Cartmel and his, his team of writers that he put together started noticing what Doctor Who was and started sort of more self-consciously being Doctor Who yeah. from Remembrance of the Daleks onwards. Not every story... Happiness Patrol and Greatest Show in the Galaxy mm. and maybe to an extent things like Ghostlight and Battlefield, maybe. Mm. But I mean, some of those stories are very 
self-consciously classic, inverted commas, Doctor yeah. Who. Which is why, even though at the time I hated season 24 and was actually more, you know, disposed to like the two seasons that followed it, now I go back and I actually prefer season 24 to the seasons that preceded and proceeded on from it. I have to say, you make a pretty good case for that. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I, I will. I'm, <laughs> I'm looking much. forward to doing the McCoy episode now, which I wasn't before, <clears> because I'm actually looking forward to revisiting all that. I'm going to make a point of watching as much as I can before we do that one. Okay, mm. that's good. Um, but I do remember at the time watching it and liking it, as Mark said, for the later ones, Yeah. when he was taking himself more seriously, because it was that big thing, probably more of a... It's funny how it's always a reflection on yourself. You're trying mm. to be taken more seriously. Yeah, and when he an takes himself more seriously. When the doctor you, takes himself yeah. more seriously and comes out with these big speeches. But now, I, think I find are, that quite uh, I think abrasive. there are two problems going back to rewatch season 24. I'm not, I'm not talking about me, I mean in general. Mm. And one is, a lot of people hated it so much at the time, or know by its reputation that it should be hated, that you, if you put Paradise Towers on, you come to it expecting to hate it. And there are massive flaws, mostly budgetary, but mm. also because of the fact that most of the writers were untested. And so, like I said, with the script for Dragonfire, yeah. the writer, is it Ian Briggs? It's Ian Briggs. I think it, it is, yeah. He's doing a lot of showing off, which mm. he probably shouldn't be doing. And so there are flaws. There are flaws all the way through season 24. But if you can get past the flaws which are obviously going to be the things that you notice if you go in expecting to hate mm. it, and you go in with an open mind, you're going to see a Doctor Who in season 24 that you have not seen for any of the 23 years before and that you will never see again, at least not until Rusty Davis takes over. Mm. You're going to see a unique series of Doctor Who that actually has more imagination and more of a sense of joie de vivre, more fun, more life mm. than probably any other series that but, Doctor Who had ever done. But that logo is going too far. <laughs> Actually, I hated that at the time, and I hated it for years afterwards. And when I sort of got back into Doctor Who like mm. 10 years ago, because I had a period where I kind of, you know, left it behind, and then I came back to it when they started releasing the DVDs with Robots and Death. And I hated it then as well. Yeah. And I continued to hate it <laughs> until, you know, I had one of those moments, you know, those sort of eureka moments. Mm. I just I was watching one of the stories and the logo came up and I was, you know, expecting to have my usual reaction to it, <laughs> which is, OK, there's a the logo. But in a minute, we'll be at the story. Mm. And I just suddenly saw it. Just had this sort of moment where I suddenly saw what the logo was and what it was trying to do and how and why it was so different to what we'd expect from mm. a Doctor Who logo. And it just suddenly made complete sense. It still says cheap to me. Yeah, I think it really I think does say cheap. I mean, yeah, I think I'm that's. A I've, <laughs> yeah, I think that's one of the problems with graphic McCoy design era as a whole. Mm. Yeah, yeah, you're it has right. the Comic Sans effect on me. It, it just. <laughs> <laughs> I think big problem using italics. Yes. In a yeah. logo, oh, yeah, I hate yeah. using italics mm. in a logo. Yeah, you should not do that. <laughs> I mean, you know, unless yeah. it's a car. Well, I, I I think we've pretty much covered Marmite, really, haven't we? I think so. There's always a chance for we another... We didn't really uh, sort of give any Marmite people, did we? Oh, I guess not, but... Mm, I mean... Uh, Bonnie Langford's the obvious one. Yeah, but is, do people love her? I do. Mm. And I know other people who do. Right, okay. So, that's, that's I mean... Fair enough. 
Well, no, to, Karen Gillan, absolutely. Yeah, Karen mm. Gillan. I would say to be properly Marmite, you have to be loved and hated in pretty much equal numbers. So, yeah. okay, for that, Bonnie Langford, you know, the Bonnie Langford <laughs> lovers. But, I mean, yeah. I, since we're talking about it and since we've just done season 24, Bonnie Langford, for me, good actress, perhaps not great actress, but a good actress. Yeah. And every bit as good an actress, or probably better an actress, than any of the other companions... Well, certainly the female ones during the 1980s. Mm. But two it's problems. <laughs> well, yeah, maybe. But two problems. One, she had the reputation Violet Elizabeth yeah, Fox, yeah. so the squeamer. And two, you know, we, we revisit it now and we think of Mel as being, you know, the absolute epitome of Doctor Who at its very worst. Mm. So mm. we bring all that pre-expectation. Do you know what? I've got it. a lesson in it. Um, We'll come to this when we do the JNT episode, yeah. but I've got more of an issue with the decision to cast her than I have with her, with really. Yeah, I think so. I think that's... And, there is a, and you know, I, I think I said this before as well, but she never got the stage direct and direction from the, any of the directors. No. You're not in a theatre. You don't need to no. project that much. Oh, this is it. One other thing I'd like to say before we Go leave on. that. Well, that's all right. We don't have to wrap up. Okay. I, one thing... We kind of mentioned this previously on the the Peter Davison episode. Yeah, that's people okay. getting a fairer crack of the whip on Big Finish, and I think she's another one that comes across much better. Oh, really? Yeah. In some of those stories, and you know, um, she's maturer for a start. Gary yeah. Russell, on with his novel Business Unusual, mm. wrote because famously the Bonnie Langford character joined during Trial yeah, of the she Time never, had a, never yeah. actually had a first story yeah. because yeah. the wibbly wobbly timey wimey. Mm. And so he decided to write her for story with Business Unusual. A lot of people don't like his books, but I, I like I like the straightforwardness of them. Yeah. And I like the simplicity of not reflecting the too many ideas spoil the broth thing that was going on through a lot of the early to mid-80s. Yeah. And Business Unusual has a really nice introductory story for Mel. Yeah. And, you know, Didn't she, she have quite a nasty... Isn't there an oh no, well? No, obviously we saw the exit story, but isn't there a later novel where she completely falls out of love with the Doctor? Oh, I don't know. I don't I know the novels some... well no, enough. No, no, oh, like, the would... novels and the big finish. Maybe someone kind of... someone could email us because I'm sure there's a story where she literally oh, nice segue into the bit where we give our email address. There, Simon, <laughs> he's been practicing that. So, Jr., if people do want to get in touch with the show, how should they do it? Well, if you've got something nice to say about the show, <laughs> then please email us at blueboxpodcast@yahoo.co.uk. If you've got something not very nice to say about the show, <laughs> then we'll give you the who shock. Email address, shall we? Is there a podcast Pod called that or Radio Free Radio, Sky? Yeah, yeah. Is that, is that if a you can find the email address for Radio Free Sky, if you've got something nasty <laughs> to say about us, just say it to them instead. Yeah, sorry guys, in advance. <laughs> and of course, they can get hold of you on Twitter. Yeah, Jr. Underscore Southall. Nobody ever does though, so it's hardly worth mentioning. But we have a Facebook page, just we Blue do, Box yeah. Podcast on Facebook. Find that and. You know, post on our wall. Yeah, there's forums think. on there as well if you want to go on and have a chat. And seriously, I always say this. If you've got something nice to say, email in. But if you've got a problem or you've got a suggestion, obviously those are the things we'd really like to hear. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. Because, you know, we're sort of sitting in Mark's living room doing this and we have <laughs> no idea whether you like what we're doing or whether you think there are ways we could improve what we're doing. So if you do think there are ways, then please feel free to let us know. Yep. 
Yep. Right, so I guess that's enough for Marmite. I mean, there's only so much Marmite you can take. <laughs> <laughs> right, I was JR. I was Simon. And I was Mark. And in a few seconds, you're going to hear Wesley Smith's arrangement of the theme tune. Uh, this was the Blue Box Podcast brought to you by starburstmagazine.com. Starburst.